Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. And thanks for joining us in season four of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to get a little wild, exploring the wild food traditions across geographic borders of the Mediterranean, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and the Middle East. I am absolutely thrilled to have one of my longtime research collaborators and dear friends on the show today, Professor Andrea Pironi. So let me tell you a little bit about Andrea. Trained in medical botany at the University of Pisa, Professor Pironi earned his doctorate from the University of Bonn in Germany. He is a full professor at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Italy, where he also just finished a term as the university rector from 2017 to 2021. Andrea is a past president of the International Society of Ethnobiology and is the founder and chief editor of the very successful scientific journal, the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine. Um, Andrea and I actually started working together 20 years ago on a field expedition in southern Italy um, when he was a research associate and I was a fresh college graduate. And for any of those of you that have started to read The Plant Hunter, this is the Andrea um, from the story. So I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. We've come a long way since then. Hey, Andrea, it's great to have you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I so admire about the work that you've done, you know, in the 20 years since since we first met was you've really become a leader in understanding how the movement of people's historic diaspora, how those movements influence their their food traditions and their ability to survive in new environments. I wonder if we could start there. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Well, the, fascination, the fascinating story is that foraging, at least in the Mediterranean and in the Near East, is a phenomenon just starting um, mm-hmm. in, in the, in, let's say, pre- predominantly from the Neolithic Revolution. So to mm-hmm. understand the foraging patterns in the Mediterranean, we have to understand um, the trajectory of this uh, uh, phenomenon which uh, was uh, together with the agriculture and moved together with the agriculture, with farming, uh, many thousand years ago. This is a fascinating story because uh, it tells that uh, the healthy diets of Mediterranean people uh, is actually Iraqi, Lebanese, (laughs) or Palestinian, or Kurdish, or Syrian, or Turkish, uh, or even Persian. And this is, to me, fascinating. It's fascinating for the perspective in terms of health, but it's also fascinating for uh, the traditions that they are uh, there, especially the cultural heritage, especially the cultural heritage of minorities who may mm-hmm. see in their tradition as a mean for uh, forging their identity, for being uh, proud, and, uh, of course, for rural development too. Yeah. So tell us about some of these places that you've worked. Um, well, I know you've done um, a lot of work in Italy, but I far started, beyond Italy. <laughs> I started yeah. from Southern Italy, as uh, you know very well, and then I moved to the Balkans. Uh, the Balkans are uh, a, a place in, in between, right? Between the Central Mediterranean and uh, the Near East. And then I moved to the Near East, especially in Kurdistan. 
and especially in the Mesopotamian uh, plateau, um, which has been historically an amazing crossroad of cultures, of tolerance, of minorities living together, having completely archaic and different religions. And uh, to see how these uh, beautiful communities uh, use plants, wild plants still nowadays for food, is uh, really uh, an incredible experience. Yeah. So what are what are some of your favorite dishes? I'm thinking, let's start with Albania. For me, it's it's spetsamemaz, the, the peppers and the yogurt sauce. What, what's your favorite? There. Well, maybe is uh, um, nettles or dock. They represent mm -hmm. the filling of pies. This is a very mm -hmm. interesting stuff because if we have uh, to um, to remember that uh, the agriculture arrived uh, maybe six, seven thousand years before uh, Christ in the area. And uh, to make a pie was something that uh, arise from there. But this was the first coupling of uh, using a cereal together with wild plants. At that time, it was impossible to make omelette frittata because the, 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 the hands arrived just many thousand years later. So this is oh. a very archaic food, the, the pies with, with wild vegetables and the beautiful marriage between the real cereals cultivated and the plants growing around the cereals. We call them wild, but maybe... They are semi-domesticated, right? And this is uh, um, an iconic uh, example of healthy diet, of diet where the knowledge of the woman is at the center, is very sustainable because most of these plants are very, very common. It, it, it is very rare that these plants put in the pies are, um, are threatened. Yeah. So when when they're making these pies, I mean, maybe we can use the pie as an example of this kind of this kind of, you know, continuum between agricultural fields versus, you know, semi-cultivation versus wild. How do plants fall along that spectrum and where do what what roles do different individuals in the household play in, in collecting and, and processing these plants? Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, point because most of these wild vegetables for the pies are gathered by the woman in the Mediterranean and also in the Near East. Since these plants uh, normally grow in anthropogenic environments, they are very close to the to the house, to the village. And the women are also those, they have the knowledge, of course, to process them and to make the pie. So it's really a, a, a female um, part of the diet, uh, which has been also the way through which uh, women in the house were providing care to everyone, mm. to the elderly, to the kids, and, and is a health care is nutritional care is both the plants that have been predominantly gathered by men in the mediterranean um, come from another kind of uh, of root they are the plants uh, connected to pastoralism and the funny story is that the first plants connected to the female words the wild vegetables for the pies have a completely different taste than the plants normally gathered by men in uh, pastoralist disturbed environments. 
That's really interesting. I know also that children have different plants that they collect as well as snacks. Um, is that is that typical across different cultures where you have different domains that children have special knowledge, that men have different lot knowledge and women have different knowledge of plants? Well, we, we have not to exaggerate on this division, but surely um, there is a, a specific knowledge. Women retain more than men and vice versa. And kids retain a very interesting interstitial knowledge, which is, by the way, not passed normally vertically, but horizontally. Then uh, means is more prone to innovation, too. And there are little things kids uh, um, collect when they play together in the fields. Of course, uh, uh, in a pastoralist context, maybe in the Mediterranean, the Near East, this is more prominent. But I've seen also in the Mesopotamic area, kids are crazy in spring to go around and to chew or to, um, to, to, to just uh, grab something from nature and have in their mouth. And these consumptions are, of course, uh, very interesting because they are small, tender parts of plants, normally bombs of phenolic acids. And uh, then uh, the practice that is, of course, uh, fudding because uh, kids know in many areas of the world the environment less and less. Yeah, yeah. I always love the ones that they will take for um, kind of for taking sweet nectar or kind of sour and sweet flavors. Um, and also plants collected for games, you know, where they'll they'll play you know, spinning tops or, you know, throw different plants that stick to clothes <laughs> on each other. It's yeah. true. It's true. Kids uh, don't not go uh, intuitively uh, to bitter plants because the bitter taste is a cultural, uh, let's say, development. Uh, they have to be around the grannies telling, eat it because it's bitter and it's very healthy for you. So the kids are more uh, prone to collect the stuff which is sweet and especially sour, which mm -hmm. is a very interesting uh, example of how also taste is uh, um, actually due partially to human ecological trajectories. We don't just eat something because it's edible, but because uh, this is something is making a certain sense in the human ecological trajectory of the practice. Yeah. Well, that kind of falls into this, also this topic of food medicine continuum. And I know this is an area that you've written a lot about as well. Um, you know, how, how do foods fall along this continuum of food and medicine? And maybe you can start by describing also to the listeners what are medicinal foods versus folk functional foods? And, and maybe you could give some examples of those. Well, um, we have uh, at the time uh, uh, invented this term to distinguish two mm -hmm. main phenomena. Um, the first is when a plant is eaten, consumed within a food context in order to obtain a very precise therapeutical effect. I prepare a soup of borage in southern Italy as a depurative or whatever. This is one thing. The second thing is when I eat uh, plants and especially wild food plants because I want just uh, to be sure um, I could keep the health. 
So um, it's something less precise in terms of therapeutic response, but extremely important because culturally, this kind of niche is not so easy to be transmitted. It's very easy yeah. uh, to be transmitted the information A is good for B, but A is good needs uh, um, a, a more social practice around. Um, and this is what is also very much, uh, uh, very much uh, fudding in the, in, the, in the Middle East and uh, in the Mediterranean. We need to go back to this idea. We eat things because we think these things can be very healthy for keeping the well-being. So this yeah. was the idea of folk functional foods. I think what else is interesting around folk functional foods is the role of the transformation process. So you're taking, whether it's a cultivated or a wild food or a semi-cultivated food, and in some way you're processing it to make it into an edible item, whether it's making a decoction or fermenting things. Um, we've talked a lot about fermentation on the show um, with uh, you know, folks like Sandor Katz, um, who's written a lot about some of the ways that foods are transformed. But I'm wondering, what role have, have you noted in your studies, both in the Balkans, but also in the Middle East, around fermentation? And how important is that to making these types of foods that are, quote unquote, good for you? So fermentation is surely, in my opinion, two main things. One is uh, um, you have a discontinuity of the resource. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you need to preserve the resource in some way. And of course, in the Mediterranean and in the East, uh, the people historically were very lucky because the climate is pretty nice, apart from very horrible summer months, more and more horrible nowadays for climate change. But even there, in the Near East and in, uh, um, in the Mediterranean, fermented food is mainly among those populations they had uh, problems in having the resource uh, uh, all over the year. So mountain peoples, for example, the Gorani of the Kosovo and Albania, or even the Yazid, the, the very, mm -hmm. let's say nowadays, uh, uh, rightly famous Yazid, they have been threatened and killed by ISIS. Mm -hmm. They have been always living uh, um, around the Sinchar mountains and they were very skilled in the Middle East. They were defermenters like the Goran. Oh. And, uh, um, and this is one thing. So you have a discontinuity. Some people are more skilled because they live in environments where the discontinuity of the resource is, uh, is larger. But however, I think also there is another point that uh, this may be the start, but actually a fermented thing is also something very sexy, very tasty, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And can uh, th this interest uh, can become also a driver, can be the pleasure to have this taste and to know that this taste and this food is making you uh, feeling better, of course, the health of the good, and so mm -hmm. I think this is also an important point. I mean, populations, they were maybe forced to adopt the lacto-fermentation, then turned uh, to be extremely enthusiastic about that. A typical example are Slavs. They would ferment, I would say, everything most <laughs> of the time. I mean, in the area between 
Ukraine and Belarus, uh, they really are super professional expert of uh, fermentation. And also Sandor Katz, when he was here, um, was very fascinated to hear from me the story of Zmreka, of the fermented juniper berries in the Balkans, uh, something we have seen very well. And uh, um, this is uh, now a possible new novel beverage that could be really traded if we would be probably more skilled to get rid of the degradation of the fatty substances they produce mm -hmm. uh, um, a kind of not always wonderful taste <laughs> but the sweetish the sourness and of course uh, the aromaticity of juniper berries fermented in water and salt is gorgeous it's amazing i mean what you're saying too i think speaks to the to the the thought process behind slow food. And you were rector of the Slow Food University um, for a number of years, and it's all about celebration of these local foods. And I'm wondering, what can you tell us about that? How your, your work and your teaching within the university, how does that tie to your research? Well, um, to be in a university where you have not to fight for the idea that these uh, uh, local food is important is beautiful but of course mm -hmm. it is a very very difficult conundrum because at the end of the day uh, local communities in many areas of the world are really struggling to keep the food system because of globalization because it's easier to buy junk foods because it's uh, easier to adapt to the mainstream so i think we are in a kind of a very uh, very um, crucial crossroad. Um, the, the interest from the science and also, let's say, the very, um, very uh, smart consumers is there. But these practices are, are, are really disappearing because uh, uh, the, the, the political frame, the eco economical frame are not able to provide these communities the the support they would need to, in a way, preserve their food system. Of course, we use the term preserve, but it's always an evolution. But I yeah. see this problem very much, especially in mountain communities. The problems are very similar all over the world, and Slow Food is doing a, an incredible job, as many other NGOs and citizens, but this is a very difficult task. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that's been discussed among ethnobotanists. I mean, for as long as I was aware of the field is around the risks of loss of traditional knowledge. But it seems that it's it's not just about knowledge loss. It's also about the loss of the practices of this knowledge. I mean, what do you think about that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, traditional knowledge at the end is little knowledge and a lot of practices. And um, if the things are just remembered is of course better than nothing, but uh, sometimes this is not enough because the practice has to be alive. Of course, a certain practice can be revitalized, but uh, the people should have incentives to do that mm -hmm. and they should not be abandoned. I, I just come back from a travel in Albania, which was very, very uh, disappointing uh, to me. I left Albania 
seven years ago with nice projects in the mountains, with slow food, with local people and so on. I came back and I found the villages completely ghost villages. The last mm -hmm. ones uh, they were doing these things got so, uh, the money from these activities and moved to the US. This is also because the relatives in the US, they moved 20 years ago, in the meantime, have the citizenship and they can, uh, let's say, call the family uh, um, to them. But uh, the reality is that uh, this uh, beautiful idea and the beautiful experiences uh, uh, just uh, uh, existing in the field uh, 10 years ago do not exist anymore. So it is extremely difficult in the world to make uh, uh, the point that uh, fragile environments like mountains or marginalized environments uh, and the people they live there in a sustainable way needs urgently help and support. But unluckily, in the mountains and marginalized environments, uh, these peoples are very few. That means they are not much voters. Yeah who can convince the politicians uh, that these uh, uh, trajectories in planning are very important. So a, a policy of mountains in the world is uh, non-existing. It's just Austria, Switzerland, very rich countries, they could do whatever. And the rest is the complete abandonment. The same problems from Afghanistan up to Morocco and the Appalachian. Well, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I mean, I think too, a lot of these mountain environments are under a number of different stressors, both climatic, but also stressors from non-sustainable harvest of, of plants for trade. Um, I think the numbers um, this year were, I can't remember exactly, but I know it was in the multiple billions of dollars for the dietary supplement industry. And, and you and I both know, like from these mountains, these are often places where local people are paid very, very little money to go out and collect these plants for, for sale as a very small supplement to their income. It's not sustainable for their, for their household income and it's not sustainable to the environment. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. And, you know, considering that this is a multi-billion dollar industry, is there more that, that the dietary supplement industry could be doing to help support these environments as many of these wild harvested plants come from there? I don't know. I strongly believe that the work that uh, could uh, be very worth is a grassroots work because when a community mm -hmm. already open up for big trade, uh, means clearly the community is in trouble, is, is, yeah. is economically in trouble, is, uh, I would say, in trouble in their souls. And, the, of course, is possibly also psychologically uh, very unstable. So when people open up for this big uh, uh, um, scale trade, which will make the situation only worse, uh, there is already a problem there. And I think at the end of the day, um, NGOs uh, uh, should work together with the communities and also scientists in order to try to find solutions together without uh, taking the easiest uh, and the, uh, the most shining solution because uh, most uh, possibly this shining solution is not, uh, is not uh, the, the right one on long term. Of course, I think the companies are more and more um, 
aware of these and they would be also they would also be very sensitive to do something but they need someone working in the field the company cannot send uh, um, yeah. a, a, a manager uh, living years <laughs> in the field so we need uh, a, a lot of uh, of concerted work like in a concert we should uh, uh, play different instruments in <laughs> in a way that makes sense for the for, for for the for the conductor. Oh, that's a that's a really beautiful analogy for it. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's so much potential, and some I mean, some of these places are also biodiversity hotspots. Um, and one of the things I've become more and more passionate about is also not only trying to put communities first, but also thinking about how, as scientists, we can also help foster research capacity um, building in these biodiversity hotspots. Um, because, you know, a lot of the scientists in these places just don't have the, the, the resources in their universities to, to undertake the kind of conservation research that's needed is absolutely yeah. important is is again a concert between uh, the internationals uh, no matter if ngos or academicians or scientists and uh, the national scientists and the local communities in most of uh, the countries in the world uh, is still uh, sadly a truth that uh, national scientists uh, know very little about their communities because uh, uh, they still follow path of science sometimes. They were modern here 30 years ago. So mm -hmm. it, it is a work of growing together to increase the capacity building of university centers in this country, promoting young people and women, promoting mm -hmm. young people and women is crucial in order to see a, an academic environment in many countries which is uh, uh, more uh, prone to work together with the communities. But this is also a problem in our very yeah. developed, of course, uh, um, European uh, or uh, American countries. We need young yeah. people, we need humble people, we need women at the forefront, uh, we need to to break the structures of an academia, which is just uh, sometimes looks like uh, power relations and not uh, nothing else. This is not, of course, uh, every time uh, these, but in some times, and you have, of course, well written also in your book <laughs> about the snake professors. <laughs> yeah, the snakes and the creepers and all of those. <laughs> characters unfortunately that persist um yeah i think these are these are such important points uh it, especially yeah i i've i've really enjoyed the opportunities to work with students from different countries for this reason and i know you've done so much to to lift up students across the world um that you've worked with well one other thing i wanted to get into is this topic of resilience and I think this is something that you really are are closely acquainted with from your work with both people that have been, as as we discussed, displaced by war or economic strife historically. So these are descendants of people that have have been displaced, but also your work with the Yazid, the the Yazidi today that have been under threat from you know within the past decade, um, attacked. How how does how does how does that 
experience influence their resilience in different environments? And, and what are some of the, the, the bits of wisdom that, that you've gleaned from that work with them? Well, as you know, this idea was very much uh, linked to the first time we met uh, in, uh, in Athens mm -hmm. in 2000. And Louisa Maffi and Brent Berlin um, at that time were working with communities. Louisa Maffi was coming from the school of Raimondo Cardona in Italy, the issue of linguistics in ethnobiology. Why is so important? Because if we are able to promote minority languages, to promote the cultural heritage of minorities, we promote also their agency in order to, uh, to, to present what they have as a value and not be shamed about that. This is a, a crucial point in minority studies. Minorities are very sensitive and they are very fragile. And sometimes it's not just a war, it's, not, it's just not the uh, weapon or, um, by ISIS, by Daesh, but is the indifference of the world. And I mm. think we need to stay together with the minorities in order to um, let them also appreciate what they have and try to, to to get another way. For example, for the Yazidi, it has been extremely crucial that um, the Nobel Prize Committee awarded the Nobel Prize to Nadia Murad because yeah. this girl who has been raped, who has gone through the, the hell for, for, for months, is now the pride of the community. Uh, the money raised by her foundation are uh, uh, funding little projects for uh, revitalize the traditional life around Sinjar. And uh, mm. the community takes the pride to see a possibility for the future. So this is extremely important. We, we sometimes may think they are completely unrelated things, but they are yeah. extremely related. And minorities... Uh, deserve our attention every time we are indifferent to minorities we are responsible for killing their culture and killing their phytotherapy food customs and so on and so on yeah and i mean that's that's the tragedy is you know with with the loss of language with the loss of culture you're losing you know millennia of development and richness of, of, as you said, of foods, of medicines, of songs, of art, of ways of knowing and thinking and living. Um, and yeah, I think a world where we only speak one language and a world where we only grow certain, you know, 10 crops is, is a very boring world indeed, and not a very healthy world. I think diversity is, is, is incredibly important um, across the board. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, um, each one of these minority um, could show beautiful cases of use of wild plants. They are very specific and they can become the, the, the pride. And uh, I think uh, uh, the issue of bioconservation is always related to the issue of uh, um, uh, cultural uh, conservation. I don't like the word conservation, but uh, we need also to preserve cultures because uh, they have the language, they have the know-how, they have the traditional knowledge for using local flora, which uh, cannot be killed because if it is killed, is lost. 
and we yeah. lose then uh, uh, biodiversity we lose cultural diversity and we lose beauty because diversity is beauty yeah well i think one of the things that's that's really great about your work andre too is not only these close connections with different communities but you've also worked in a diversity of communities with a diversity of, of groups and i'm wondering if you can share with us you know how do you make those choices of where to work next how do you plan you know your your kind of your your cycle of research um, for any students that are listening, they may be in, interested in, in knowing how that. Well, I have been always extremely interested in minorities, also um, actually uh, before Georgia, and uh, I like uh, to know where these specific diasporic group and these minorities live, and so on and so on. And in certain contexts, this is not easy. Even the word minority in a certain political context is a highly disputed word is considered mm -hmm. let's say a western invention for uh, uh, basically making uh, the national business foreigners shouldn't do for example my phd who has been just finished a phd working on very very fragile linguistic minorities at the hindu kush had a hard time to convince the professors in Pakistan that this is a quintessential ethnobotany. Because, nice. of course, in many contexts, this is considered a political discussion, this is considered something we shouldn't uh, address, not to talk about religious minority. This is even more sensitive. Um, mm -hmm. the, the issue of a very small religious group, they are even afraid to uh, tell um, uh, foreigners and strangers um, their beliefs. Um, this is crazy. We should, ethnobiology should take the issue of minorities very seriously because uh, um, it's fine to have the traditions, but at the end of the day, the traditions are managed by uh, peoples, and these peoples have to be, at first, proud of what they have. Yeah. yeah. Oh, those are such great points. And so looking into these um, diaspora, where do you, what do you see as happening in the future? I mean, I guess some of my, my kind of doomsday concerns are around loss of biodiversity, loss of linguistic diversity, um, and also the, the climate crisis. And as someone that studies displaced peoples, um, what are your thoughts about what's to come with the movement of peoples as basically they lose access to their, to their, you know, historic homelands? Well, this is a big problem. Um, there are different reasons, of course, uh, uh, behind the moving of people. But um, in the world, mm -hmm. most of the time nowadays, they are not good uh, and uh, positive reasons. The people are mm -hmm. forced to move because they are uh, threatened very bad, because they have huge economic problems, because they have wars, because they have climate change in the areas where they come from. So I strongly believe that uh, it is important to look at uh, the diasporic groups they have moved, because sometimes these are those they may get in the new environments intuitions 
they may get also another energy that could be useful for the brothers and sisters remained at home. So just mm. an example regarding Albania. The Albanian new cuisine, which is so interesting, sustainable, using local products, is mainly nowadays in the world promoted by chefs in the diaspora. And they have a strength and they have an incredible energy. I was uh, just uh, in Pristina and in Tirana. In Pristina, I met Faisal Demirai. Faisal was the sous chef of Noma, the first chef in the world, and is the leader of these gastronomic expeditions. And wow. he has such an enthusiastic uh, view regarding uh, what could be done in Kosovo in gastronomy. And uh, his intention is to remain in Kosovo and to live in Kosovo. He, was, uh, he grew up in New York and then moved to Noma as Albanian. And the other example in Tirana is, of course, uh, the, 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 the Kola brothers, Altin Prenga, living for many years abroad. And now the big new chef of Tirana, Blerry Dervishi, just arrived one year ago from Italy and uh, creating an incredible environment for Nouvelle Cuisine. So the diaspora um, groups are uh, potentially incredible in their uh, enthusiasm, uh, which could, of course, infect also the ones... Uh, um, who are at home. So I think this is one of the key. But of course, we have to be very worried if uh, entire nations are just moving and the countryside are completely abandoned. We have uh, in Europe uh, the big cases of Bulgaria and Romania. Basically, mm. um, basically uh, they are ghost countries apart from the cities because uh, of economic crisis in the last 20 years, all the people moved to Western Europe and the countryside is completely abandoned with uh, um, consequences uh, in terms of geology, in terms of uh, uh, problems when uh, there is some rain and so on and so on. Sustainable mm. management of the territory, which is not easily solvable. That's, that's why we need also the political level to, to try to, to keep a balance because migration is a crazy opportunity. It's a beautiful stuff, even if it starts from horrible reason. But uh, if a country, if a whole country migrate, this is also something which is uh, unbalanced. Yeah, well, that's that's a really good point. And, you know, the, the, the point around also land management, it's not just um, the know-how of the land or having people there, but, you know, when we think of, even when we think of forests, which many wouldn't consider to be managed, um, people are managing those forests and those ecosystems. And when you abandon that management, um, yeah, it's not always good. Wow. Well, last question, Andrea, um, and this is the hardest question um, because you have tasted so many amazing things around the world. We talked about the incredible vegetable pies in Albania, but if you could pick any other dish that's kind of new that perhaps uh, listeners haven't heard about before, what, what could you share with them? What can you tell us about? Well, one dish which is very, very simple. I'm sorry, it's not much uh, a <laughs> woman stuff, it's more a man stuff, uh, is the yeah. wild rhubarb in Kurdistan. Wild rhubarb yeah. in Kurdistan is like gelato, for ice cream for Italians. Wow. Everyone in the spring, men, young, old, run up 
uh, the top of the mountains to collect the stems of uh, rhubarb and wild rhubarb. And they bring in the village and these wild uh, stems are exchanged, they are enjoyed just with the salt and they are just uh, uh, snacked communally in, in the community, in the meal, before the meal, after the meal. So simple and such a beautiful example of commensality, of enjoying together. That's amazing. What do they taste like? Is it kind of crunchy or is it? It's very interesting. It's, of course, crunchy and a little bit mm-hmm. of uh, sour. But if you are very skilled, the same species, but to, 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 to grab the right spot, you can have also sweetish notes, even rose note. And if you are wow. really very skilled, you can even, in a way, um, tame the rubber bar. You bring some some stuff from home and you try to protect the the fleshy stems. And after one week, these fleshy stems are whitish and bigger and thicker and crunchier. And this is also a kind of taming in the wild. Um, But the most important thing is that uh, these snacks, differently from the normal snacks, are not eaten on the spot, but are just eaten uh, together and discussing and and also sometimes singing and dancing is a beautiful example of how simple can be a recipe. Just raw stamps of wild (laughs) rubber That's great. So sorry, listeners, this is not something you can run to the grocery store to get. You got to run up a mountain in Kurdistan (laughs) and get, but if you get to one of those villages at the right time of year, maybe you'll get a chance to share it. I may have to add that to my bucket list of places to go with you someday, Andrea. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, You can find this episode and all of our others at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find us streaming on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. I want to give a shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We're now on season four, and I'm so excited the show is still going on. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.